0: On the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple, common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors.
1: All right. I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors. I'm your host, Chris Flaming here as always. And today I have the honor of welcoming Brandon Hall to the program. He is the president of Midland Trust headquartered in Fort Myers, Florida with additional locations in Chicago and Sioux Falls. They serve as custodians for financial professionals and their clients that hold a wide array of alternative asset classes. Brandon, thanks for being here and welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Chris, and I hope I can uh, provide some informative information for your listeners.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you will, and we got a lot to cover. Let's hop in. So I I think you have a pretty interesting history. I'd like you to take me through that briefly on what led you and Midland Trust to where it is today.
2: Sure. Um, So I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is about 20 miles east of Atlanta. Um, I spent my collegiate years at the University of Alabama, And then I moved down to Fort Myers, specifically uh, Sanibel Island, Florida, about 26 years ago. I met my wife in college and we got married right out of school and um, we've been happily married for 26 years. So I originally worked for a marketing analysis company for my first eight years in Florida. Uh, We primarily did research for uh, investment analysis for General Motors for the most part. Um, but I was a statistical modeler. I did programming. It was completely different from what I do now because there was no social interaction at all. Okay. Um, and after about eight years, um, you know, business was a little slow and I started I needed something more stable. And so I contacted Dave Owens, who owns Midland Trust. And uh, at the time, he was an accountant and he, he had a CPA firm um, and they did 1031 exchanges on the side as a qualified intermediary. And uh, I knew he was starting up this IRA business. He had heard that some of his clients had asked him, um, can you, you know, we heard you could buy real estate in an IRA. And he thought, man, I need to just start a business with this because Southwest Florida real estate was booming at the time. And so he started up this company and um, I joined him. I think we had 50 accounts when I joined. We had one other employee that was running it. And now here we are 18 years later with 18,000 accounts. Um, you know, three point seven billion under administration and, and sixty five employees. So things have changed dramatically.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great story. So what, uh, what what are you liking best right now about the business currently?
2: From my career standpoint, you know, I used to say I, I used to always answer this question: with I love helping clients I accomplish their goals." I, I was always on the phone for many many years assisting with clients. Now, uh, things have changed because I'm not really client-facing anymore. I'm I'm more involved with managing the company. So I really enjoy um, mentoring. We have a lot of younger employees. We have a lot of 25 to 35-year-old employees that are fresh out of college. And I I hear them on the phone, and I I like to give them constructive feedback on what they should say or maybe shouldn't say, and just mentoring them, even in non-Midland areas, just uh, helping them out.
1: General. Yeah, any way you can give back especially in the, and you're in a, a business scenario where you can make an impact on how they're doing in the work and also maybe in their personal life too. Absolutely. As, yeah, I find that to be really satisfying as well. So let's hop in a little bit into some details around uh, what we're going to talk about. Midland in general helps with alternative asset classes and, and holding those in what are called self-directed IRAs. We'll get into that in a minute, but let's start by defining first for people, in case they don't know, what what is a custodian, right? So what, what does that mean? What, what, how do they, what capacity right. do they act?
2: Right. So a custodian is a, is a highly regulated bank or trust company um, that's permitted to custody assets. Um, and so to be a custodian, you have to qualify in one of two ways. You're either a bank or a trust company in which you're automatically qualified. Or there's a way that you can get pre-approved if you're not a bank or a trust company uh, that you could get on this pre-approved list of custodians. There's not too many companies on that list because you have to put up a lot of money to do that. But we are regulated by the South Dakota Division of Banking as a trust company chartered in South Dakota. And uh, so we are permitted to hold in custody assets within IRA accounts.
1: Okay. All right. And what help us understand what makes an IRA... Self-directed, right? So an IRA is an individual retirement account. Most people are familiar with the term, or um, they might have one, or know some, right. or have family that <laughs> have them. But what what makes it self-directed? Right, uh,
2: and that term is growing in popularity. Uh, it has over the last twenty years. Um, but to be honest with you, it's a made-up term. Uh, there's four types of IRAs. There's Roth and traditional, and then there's your employer-sponsored plans, which are called SEP and SIMPLE. So there's four types of IRAs. Um, any of them can be self-directed. Self-directed is a descriptive term that basically indicates that the client is making all of their own investment decisions. Truthfully, you could have a self-directed IRA at Charles Schwab or Fidelity, but in my eyes, it's not truly self-directed because brokerages are going to limit your investment choices to the products that they sell. At Midland, we don't sell any investments, so we don't put those same
1: limitations on our clients. Okay. So the client is choosing what they want to have inside of it. In a lot of cases, if they can't do that through a traditional brokerage, that would be a reason to use a separate custodian or trust company to hold those assets.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we call them alternative assets. I mean, yeah. one of our biggest holdings is real estate. And in the traditional investment world, real estate is not considered an alternative asset. It's, I mean, right. aside from the stock market, it's probably the most popular investment out there. But when you view it in the IRA world, it is an alternative because the truth of the matter is 99% of the IRA custodians are stockbrokers or banks. And they do a fine job. I have accounts at both. I'm not putting them down. But they only let you invest in what they have to sell. Um, you can't buy real estate at Charles Schwab or Fidelity for three reasons, really. Number one, they don't know how to make any money on that type of asset. Number two, they don't want to deal with the administrative burdens of closings and tax bills and insurance and deeds and evictions and all the fun stuff that goes with real estate. Uh, And number three, they don't want to deal with valuation issues. You know, part of our role as a custodian is to report the value of our clients' accounts to the IRS each year. And it's easy for Schwab and Fidelity to obtain these uh, values because their system tells them what Apple stock was worth on 1231. In our world, we have clients that own properties in Costa Rica, or private oil and gas ventures, or private you know, equity deals, um, and, and so we have to spend, you know, from January through April, collecting that those values from our clients and updating it in our system, so that we can do proper reporting in May when the fifty-four ninety-eights are required to be sent out to the IRS. Yeah.
1: Right. Okay. So oh, you mentioned something there, that term alternative asset. So how, how, do you, how does one define that? In the scope of our conversation, how do you define an alternative asset?
2: Well, since you know 97% of IRA assets are in the market with the traditional stock market, basically, I would define alternative as the 3% that is not in the market. We hold a lot of different types of assets that are considered alternative. Uh, I mentioned real estate, I think our most common right now is private equity. Uh, we're probably doing 50% of our transactions are private equity. We have clients that loan money that do hard money lending. Uh, some of those are just on a promissory basis, but others they they secure their loan with a mortgage. They, they their IRA actually acts as a bank and loans money. And a lot of those loans are are short term loans. Maybe they're bridge loans until the borrower can qualify for a traditional. Um, so sometimes they're at higher interest rates, um, and if you if they secure themselves very well, there's you know, very little risk there. But you know we don't we don't advise clients. We don't get into the areas of risk or because um, we're not a fiduciary, we're not a financial advisor. We're just a, a facilitator of
1: alternative
2: as the transactions. Right?
1: Okay. So you kind of mentioned this, but what do you see as being the alternative assets that are most commonly held in a? Self-directed IRA. Is it real estate still? You mentioned that you are doing a no. lot of transactions with private equity, but what do you see?
2: Yeah, it used to be real estate for us primarily because of where we're located, Southwest mm-hmm. Florida. Uh, over the last twenty years, has had a huge uh, real estate development, and originally most of our clients were from here, and so you know now it's a little bit different. Now we've made a name for ourselves in, in the whole around the whole country, and. You know, out of our eighteen thousand clients, probably only about a thousand are in Southwest Florida. So, in the beginning of our, gro- uh, our growth stages, we were doing presentations at real estate offices, at real estate associations, and a lot of our you know the majority of our accounts were real estate. But as we've grown, I would say right now the, the, most of our most of our clients are buying private equity. It's probably only maybe twenty percent that do real estate, but that's still still significant. Where we live.
1: Okay, so are there some extra steps or rules that come with a self-directed IRAs that hold alternative assets? You you kind of alluded to this a little bit, like with the reporting and the valuations. But what are some uh, maybe some things unique to those that uh, traditional or a Roth or a SEP or a simple IRA don't have to do if they're not self-directed?
2: Right. Um, that's a very good question. And there are definitely some things that you need to be aware of as, as a listener here, um, if you're going to do self-direction. There are uh, some rules that the IRS has that don't really affect clients that have brokerage accounts. Number one, there's certain people that your IRA is not allowed to do business with. And basically, that's yourself, your spouse, or lineal descendants or ascendants of either. So in other words, uh, my father, if he owned let's just say a piece of property, it doesn't matter what the asset is. He could not sell that piece of property to my IRA or vice versa or to his own IRA. And the reason they have those rules is to prevent sweetheart deals that are meant to avoid taxes. You know, what's to keep somebody from selling something worth 50,000 from their IRA to a relative and for $10. And now they figured out a way to get all that value out of the IRA you know, without any taxes. So aside from self-dealing, There's also a couple asset classes that you're not allowed to invest in. Um, We don't see too many clients asking about these asset classes anyway, but just for conversation's sake, I'll I'll tell you, it's basically life insurance and collectibles. Um, Specifically on the collectibles, they mention works of art, antiques, rugs, alcoholic beverages are mentioned for some reason. And so they they do make exceptions for certain government-minted coins or or bullion. Uh, But if you want to buy coins from sunken ships or jewelry, those are all considered collectibles and are not allowed. So I think they don't want collectibles in there because they're hard to value a piece of art, maybe worth something to you and something totally different to me. And um, the IRS needs those values, not only for uh, calculation of required distributions at age 72, but, but also to forecast future tax revenue. And so they don't want things in the assets in the account that are hard to value. As far as life insurance, my only theory on that would be that defeats the purpose of why IRAs were created in 1974 to begin with. Um, IRAs were created as a way for people to um, benefit from the account when they retire. And with life insurance, uh, you're you're never benefiting when you retire. Your heirs are benefiting when you die. Yeah. Oh, and one more thing on the rules. Um, Also, I probably should mention that the IRA is even though it may be your IRA, it's really considered a separate entity from yourself while it's an IRA. I mean, once you take the money out, it's, it's your money. But while it's an IRA, it's a separate entity. And uh, the IRS doesn't want you benefiting from something that this entity is doing uh, while it's an IRA. So buying, for instance, a vacation home that you want to use or a house in a college town that you want to rent to your son while he's in college, um, those are considered prohibited transactions as well. You really want to keep your IRA investment separate from anything you're doing personally.
1: Good question. Well, yeah, so as a general rule, just don't do anything with anybody you're related to. Pretty much. <laughs> you're yeah. probably in good shape. Yeah. So you could buy, you know, buy
2: residential property or commercial. I, I keep coming back to real estate, but it's, yeah, it makes it makes for an easier conversation. You know, you you rent that property out to an unrelated party. And they pay your IRA rent. They don't pay you the rent on the property. Your IRA owns the property. So we receive hundreds of rental checks every week that we're depositing in our clients' accounts. And then we're paying, you know, we're cutting over hundred checks a day to pay bills that our clients are asking us to pay related to the real estate, like HOA, lawn maintenance, property taxes, et cetera.
1: Yeah, because the not only does the income go through the IRA, but also the expenses have to flow out of that as well. Exactly. And you can't be commingling that stuff. Okay, let's shift gears just a little bit. I want you to help us understand what a 1031 exchange is. So simple terms, um, assume I'm a complete dummy on this. How would you you explain a 1031 exchange? Sure.
2: And before we begin on that note, I do want to specify that 1031s are totally separate from your IRAs. So IRAs are tax deferred by nature, the way that they they were established and, and created. So when you do transactions in an IRA, there's no taxation. I mean, there might be when you take distributions eventually, but when you're buying and selling assets, there's no taxation. Everything sits deferred or eliminated in case of raw. Now, with a 1031, that's a section of the tax code, section 1031, that uh, basically allows you to defer taxes on the sale of personally owned real estate, not IRA owned real estate. Right. So if you have personal, and it, and it does have to be investment, you already get a, a break if you're selling your, your primary residence. Um, so these are like investment properties. So the IRS is basically saying, if you want to sell a property, and if you follow the rules of Section 1031, which I can go into in a little bit, and you buy another property within 180 days, and as long as you follow all the rules of Section 1031, you can defer the taxes from the sale of the original property. So basically, they're, they're not penalizing you by swapping or exchanging properties. And that's uh, real estate is the only asset class that they allow that for. You, you can't sell Apple stock and then exchange it for Microsoft and, and eliminate or defer the taxes. It doesn't work. And it's not allowed in uh, the stock market world. It's only allowed for, for investment real estate. So that's what a 1031
1: exchange is. And what do you think are some common just misconceptions that people have in general about using alternative assets?
2: Sure. With the
1: 1031?
2: Yeah. Or any
1: of them, actually. Yeah. So
2: a misconception, the common myths about 1031s, um, one is, and there's really five things you need to know about 1031 exchange. If you know these five, if you know these five things, you know, 95% of what you need to know. The exchange has to be like kind. And there's a common myth out there that like kind means the exact same type of real estate. Like if you sell an apartment building, you got to buy an apartment building. And that's not true. Any deeded property qualifies. You could go from a a single family home to five pieces of vacant land. It still qualifies for 1031 exchange. You do have to have owned the property. Most accountants would recommend for at least a year and a day to qualify for an exchange. In order to defer all of the taxes you have to at least buy up, buy equal or greater value compared to the net selling price. So let's just say your property was $300,000 that You're selling. After closing costs and commissions to realtors, let's say your net selling price is $270,000. $270,000 is what you would have received. In order to defer all of the taxes on the sale of that property, you've got to buy a property that's at least $270,000 or more. If you buy less, you can still do the exchange, but you're going to pay taxes on the difference.
1: A yeah, little okay? little bit there. Okay.
2: Another well, a couple of other rules. There's a 45-day rule, which basically says from the day you sell your original property, you have 45 days to identify up to three potential replacement properties. If you identify three properties and they're all off the market a week later, you can add more. But once that 45-day period has expired you can't add any properties so you better be pretty confident that you're going to close on at least one of those properties and you have to close on those properties within 180 days there is one other rule on the three property identification if you want to identify more than 3 you can but the combined value of all the identified properties cannot be 200% more than more than 200% uh, more than this net selling price so and then lastly you must use a qualified intermediary that's where we come in. We see so many times we did eight, we did about 800 exchanges last year. And we see so many times where clients will call us after they've sold their property and they want to do a 1031 exchange. And at that point, it's just too late. You have to get the qualified intermediary involved from the beginning before the closing, because the role of the QI is to hold the money during that six month time until it's needed for the replacement. Um, once you've touched the money, you know, it's too late. It's become a taxable event at that point.
1: Interesting. Okay. So I can see where that would be an easy one to slip up if you, yeah, don't, very if you don't know the rules. Yeah.
2: And we've, we've had to turn people away because it's just too late and the code doesn't allow it. And uh, we try to do, a, you know, we do a very good job of informing clients when they're approaching their 45-day and their 180-day because if they, if they miss those deadlines, they're just out of luck. We, we would return the money to them, but now they've touched it. So it's become taxable.
1: All right. Yeah. Thanks for taking us through that. That's a really good explanation on that. I learned a couple of things when you went through that as well. So any other common misconceptions that people might have about other alternative asset classes that you guys deal with a lot?
2: They do take a little more effort. I'm not gonna deny you know self-direction is not for everybody. My grandmother is 96 years old. She probably does not need to be a landlord or or to be controlling her investments. It's really it's not for everybody. It's really for people who want to take control. They often have to have a little bit more time because they have to vet their investments. So if they're working 80 hours a week, it may be more difficult to find the investments that you want.
1: Well I'm curious. let me ask you this Brandon, is from this standpoint, are there any financial requirements of a person to, to self-direct an IRA? You know in some cases, uh, people have to have certain net worth or a certain amount of income or a certain right. amount of assets. So does that apply on the custodian level where there are requirements?
2: There are no limitations like that with our clients. They may find that it's difficult to find an investment at a self-directed custodian if they have a small account. I mean, if you only have $10,000 in your IRA, there's maybe not a lot of options for you at a self-directed custodian. I, I guess you could buy a... A vacant land, a vacant lot somewhere, or a couple gold eagles. But yeah, you know, there's
1: probably uh, some land in, in South Dakota that we could get right, right, right. <laughs> out, <laughs> but, out but, in the east, out in the exactly. eastern part or the central part, <laughs> <laughs> right. But most of our
2: clients, you know, when they our average IRA is like 150 thousand. So you know, most of our clients have built up their retirement over years. So yeah. our clients tend to be a little bit older. They've built up hundreds of thousands of dollars to do these things. Now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing you can do with a smaller amount. We have clients that invest in private placements and they put 50000 or 25000 in. Now, there's no limitations on our end, but the private placement, the private offering of might have their own limitations mm-hmm. and uh, and they might have, have to have the client be uh, accredited
1: yeah. Um, so but again, you guys, you don't get into that. Midland is correct. not. You're just acting as the custodian in that case, not actually correct. providing counsel or, or making sure that they're accredited or not. Okay. Correct. So let's shift um, gears just a little bit. Um, I'm curious, what would you say is your biggest life accomplishment so far? Well,
2: so just January 1st, I was promoted to president of Midland IRA. Now, okay. uh, Midland IRA is our operations arm. Of Midland Trust Company. So I kind of oversee all of our operations. That would be my biggest life accomplishment. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Okay. And outside of your practice, is there any outside of your business, your role that you play? Is there anything that you are really passionate about personally?
2: Yes. So pretty much everybody in my company, would going to know how I'm going to answer this. So as a University <laughs> of Alabama graduate, it's pretty hard to go to school there and not be a, a complete football nut. So my Alabama football. We're a big uh, baseball family. Most of my family played in college, and uh, my dad played at Alabama with uh, Kenny Stabler, was on his team, the great NFL quarterback. Yep. People don't know he was a pitcher too. So big baseball family, and then uh, I do like to travel. I've been. Many places in the states uh, have not been abroad yet, but got a 17 year old and a 12 year old. as soon
1: as they're out of the house, I
2: plan on on traveling a little bit further away. Yeah,
1: get them gone so we can start to start <laughs> doing some stuff. All right. So in the future, what do you really see as being the biggest opportunity um, for Midland going forward? Well, well, we
2: are we're really focused right now on technology because mm. you know things have changed tremendously in the 18 years that we've been doing this you know, used to everybody would open an account with paper, you know, clients fill out forms, nobody likes to fill out forms, you know, why can't we do things for the client, make Midland easy to do business with put something in front of the client, then all they have to do is click a button to approve it. That's where we're going. Um, you know, we used to receive hundreds of checks. And now, you know, we've got electronic deposits, so tenants can pay electronically. And, you know, with technology, not only are you more efficient, but um, you're more accurate. You know, when you don't have people hand entering data into systems, you yeah. know, when, when the clients are entering it themselves, and then we're just pushing it through. That's the opportunity we have is to try to be uh, as
1: technological uh, as we can. With, yeah. you know, make things. Yeah, I'm finding that in our business too, where you know, yeah. the e-signing or the docu-signing or anything that doesn't have to have a wet signature yep. as long as people are comfortable. And they are a lot more comfortable with all that stuff after the pandemic because uh, yep. in a lot of cases they didn't have a choice. It's like, well, it's here's the only way you can do the form. So they were okay with it. Okay. So on the flip side of that, what do you really see as being probably the biggest challenge or obstacle that the, the business still needs to overcome or, or needs to deal with? Well, you know, every company is interested in growth.
2: I think from Midland standpoint, we really want scalable growth. Mm. Um, there are, you know, we have an outstanding reputation for our customer service at Midland. Um, some of our competitors can't really say that. And I don't want to jeopardize that for immediate returns. I'm not going to mention them by name, but one of our competitors went from having 20 employees last year to like 125 or 130 this year. Because they went big on this crypto thing and they really are pushing crypto accounts. They're spending tons of money on marketing. And I can just imagine having a 100 new employees in one year trying to train them and keep your service at the same level that you're accustomed to. If you go to our Google uh, reviews, I mean, there's hundreds of them on there and there's very, very, very few negative ones. And I, I take pride in that. Um, so I really, I want to continue to grow. But I want it to be scalable growth. I do not want it to jeopardize what we've done over the last 18 years from a service.
1: Yeah. And since you brought up the crypto thing, is that currently something that I don't know the answer to this? Is that currently something that could be held in a self-directed IRA? So
2: we have made the decision that we are not going to hold crypto in the sense of you know holding the wallets yeah. and all of that. Now we do have a, a couple relationships with a couple third parties where clients can do crypto in those accounts. Um, so basically, we would open the IRA for them. The client would direct us to send the money to the crypto brokerage or crypto company, and then they yeah. can do the trading on that in that platform. Okay. Uh, but we we don't actually hold uh, there's certain assets that are just from an administrative standpoint are kind of more work than they're worth from a, hey, from a yeah. money standpoint. So like yeah. we, we won't hold like tax deed certificates, you know, clients can set up. We have solutions. They can set up an LLC to hold those and we can yeah. fund the LLC and, 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 you know, foreign currencies, another one. And uh, auction properties, those are sometimes difficult because the auction houses, they want to tie our name to the same tax ID. And if we have a different client that wants to invest in the same auction, they have a problem comprehending that the two owners are different because the tax IDs are the same. Yeah. So there's certain assets that we don't like to touch, but we do have solutions for clients who want to get into those and crypto yeah. is one of those.
1: It's, just a, it's a business decision. I mean, you make right. a business decision as to what you want to pursue and what you want to invest your time right. and resources in. I get that. Right. Okay. But we put very few limitations.
2: It's, those are just a few small examples. Most of our clients are free to invest in whatever they want as long as it's allowable with the IRS. Right.
1: Which is an important... <laughs> <laughs> That's an important <laughs> thing to make sure you get squared away before you do it. All right, Brandon, yeah. we're, we're coming close to the end. If people want to learn more about you or Midland or contact the company, what is the best way for them to do that?
2: Sure. Uh, so probably the best way would be our website. Um, it's midlandtrust.com. Okay. Um, if you want to contact me directly, I'm happy to take calls and, and get you in the right hands. Um, my phone number is 239 Four nine one two, and then my email is b hall b is in Brandon h a l l at
1: midlandtrust Great, thank you. All right, we covered a lot of territory here. That was very helpful, Brandon. I want to thank you again for being here and taking the time to educate our listeners. It's been a true pleasure, and I want to thank everybody for tuning in, listening, watching the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we are raising the retirement confidence of everyday people to another level. One show at a time. Thanks, everybody. Be well. Take care.
0: You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.